today we're continuing with the series of sermons, The Struggle is Real. That struggle between what we believe and how we behave. That struggle that comes about when life just isn't quite working out right or, because, or we're not doing things the way that we know that we really want them to, to do them. It's a real struggle that happens in our lives. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, St. Paul says that in Christ we are a new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come. In Christ you are a new creation. I am a new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come. When Paul wrote those words, he wasn't just telling us about what we could expect in our Christian life. He was also describing what happened in his Christian life. Remember his story? Paul, or in Hebrew, Saul, was an up-and-coming Pharisee. He was smart and ambitious and seized an opportunity to make a name for himself. At the time when the Christian church was still in its kind of early years, some religious leaders became concerned with the growth of Christianity. They had thought that they'd done away with this whole Jesus thing when they had him crucified. But rather than doing away with the Christian thing, with the Jesus thing, emboldened disciples started proclaiming Christ crucified and risen. And people believed, and the church started growing. And in order to squelch this growing movement, a persecution began. Saul oversaw the execution of the first Christian martyr, Stephen. And with the death of Stephen, some of the Christians scattered and, and escaped to Samaria, to Damascus. And when Paul learned that there are Christians up in Damascus, he then went after them to arrest them and bring them back to Jerusalem. Along the journey to Damascus, Saul had a life-changing experience. He encountered the risen Christ who asked him why he was doing what he was doing. And you may remember that it was at that moment that Paul was stricken blind and he remained blind for three days, although it would be fair to say that it was at that moment that he actually began to see, see something of the truth of Jesus Christ. He became a Christian. But in that moment, moment of becoming a Christian, that is not when the rewrite of the narrative of Paul's life was completed. When he became a Christian, the rewrite of the narrative of his life was just beginning. And there was a whole lot of rewriting of his life that needed to take place. And so it's no surprise that Paul disappears for more than 10 years, he disappears before he emerges in ministry and starts writing letters because there was a whole lot of stuff in his life that had to be unpacked and changed. Last week, I introduced kind of a, an image that I want to return to real quickly, and that was the image of us going on a long journey. So we gas up the car and we fill the car with with the provisions that are our life, the back seat full of 
of the burdens that we carry, the trunk full of our attitudes and our prejudices and our ideologies, um, our beliefs, that kind of stuff. Now, we're Christians, and so Jesus is in the car with us, and because we've decided to follow him, he's the navigator for this trip. And so we set out on this trip, but soon we come upon a really steep hill. It's so steep that our car won't make it up the hill. And so we have a choice to make. Do we stay at the bottom of the hill? Jesus is with us. We're Christian. But if we stay at the bottom, we never see the fullness of what God intends for our lives. Or... Do we lighten the load, get rid of some of the burden in order to be able to make it up the hill? Paul chose to lighten the load. And if we could peer into this imaginary car that Paul would be driving, into the back seat of it, we know some of what we'd see. The weight of the guilt and shame of him having overseen the murder of Stephen, one of the saints of God. The depth of that sin, that had to weigh heavily on him. It's not an easy thing to be able to get rid of. And not only that, but also that pride and that arrogance that would lead somebody to do such a thing in the name of God. You can envision him popping, getting out of the car and popping open the trunk and seeing in his suitcases his beliefs, his ideologies, his prejudices, his attitudes realizing that now so much of what he had once believed was wrong. He had been wrong about God. He'd been wrong about other people. He'd even been wrong about something of his own life. That was a lot to have to deal with. A lot to have to, to work through and overcome in order to make it up that hill. But God is good, God is faithful, and God helped him to unpack that stuff to the point where one day he made it up that hill, and then he could describe for us the wonder of what he saw as he said, in Christ we are a new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come. Throughout his letters, he describes what this new creation looks like. We turn our attention to some of those words from the book of Romans. Kim, will you read for us? Romans 12, 8 through 13. The exhorter in exhortation, the giver in generosity, the leader in diligence, the compassionate in cheerfulness. Let love be genuine. Hate what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with mutual affection, outdo one another in showing honor. Do not lag in zeal, be ardent in spirit, serve the Lord, rejoice in hope, be patient in suffering, persevere in prayer, contribute to the needs of saints, and extend hospitality to strangers. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Amen. Thank you, Kim. I forgot a little earlier to welcome Jonathan, who's directing our choir today, so we want to welcome him. Carolyn's on vacation, but welcome. Thank you so much for helping to lead us. Appreciate it. Let us pray. 
May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable unto thee, O Lord our God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Christianity is a relational faith. It's all about being in relationship with God and how it is that we are in relationship with one another and with creation itself. Because it is relational, Jesus often used relational analogies to help us understand. He'd talk about brides and grooms, about parents and children, about friends. As is the case with every healthy relationship, our Christian faith is rooted in a covenant, a covenant held together by promises. God makes promises to us. Remember some of God's promises to us? God's promises for forgiveness, to give us God's spirit, to help us to grow in our faith, to be with us always, to bring comfort to our lives, promises of eternal life, of resurrection, and on and on the list goes of the things that God promises to us. Likewise, we make promises to God. We promise to follow Jesus, to pray, to talk and to listen to God, to study God's word, to treat other people with dignity, to work for justice, to feed the hungry, to clothe the naked, to worship, to study, to give, and through it all to open ourselves up to the working of God in our lives as God is rewriting that narrative of our lives. It is within this covenant that God does the rewriting of the narrative that is our lives. Let me say that in a different way. The rewriting of the narrative of our lives takes place as we live within our covenant with God. And it includes a whole lot of things that have to happen. The unpacking and healing of our brokenness, forgiveness of our sins. It includes us forgiving other people. It includes us dealing with our dysfunction or our addictions or our guilt or our shame. It includes us turning off the tapes that keep playing over and over and over again in our heads, those tapes rooted in some hurt uh, that's been caused to us or some feeling of insignificance that, uh, that we have. And replacing those tapes with new tapes, with a new message that we're beloved children of God, beautiful to behold, that we are forgiven, that we are worthy, that our lives matter. How does this happen? And what do we do to be a part of this rewriting of the narrative of our lives? Picture this rewriting of the narrative of our lives being like the form of a book. The prelude of the book, we find a statement of faith. In the prelude, we see that we have decided that God is important to us in our lives, that we're seeking God's wisdom for our lives, that we want God's help for our lives. Everything else that I'm going to say today is built upon that foundation that we want God to be a part of our lives, that we want God's help. So that's the prelude 
to the rewriting of the narrative of our lives. And with that, we turn to chapter one. And I call chapter one, you are loved by God. It's very important for us to claim that we are loved by God. It's an important part of this rewriting of the narrative that we understand that we claim that God loves us. As we read through the scriptures, we see that it's a driving theme that runs throughout all of the Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. It was, we were created as an act of self-giving love. God continues to be involved in our lives as an act of self-giving love. God sent Christ into the world as an act of self-giving love. God calls us friends as an act of self-giving love. And in our baptism, God says that we are beloved children of God with whom God is well pleased because God loves us right here, right now. You, God loves you. And this is so important for us to claim, this love that God has for us, because it creates a sense of safety for us to enter into the struggles that are so real in our lives. And here's what I mean by that by form of analogy. When I do premarital counseling with couples, one of the things that I talk to them about and ask them is how they do in expressing their love they have for one another. I'll ask them, do they speak words of affirmation to each other? Do they speak words of appreciation for each other? Trying to help them understand that every word of appreciation, every word of affirmation, every expression of love is kind of weaving a safety net beneath their relationship, a safety net woven out of these expressions of love that becomes really, really important when we encounter the hard things of life. And hard things inevitably come. And sometimes it's hard to talk about the hard things. And sometimes it's hard to talk about them because it makes us feel vulnerable. What if he or she doesn't care? But when we have this safety net beneath us, we don't feel so vulnerable. It's easier for us to enter into those hard and real and honest conversations. So it is with our relationship with God. Understanding that God loves us, claiming that love builds a sense of safety beneath us so that, it's, so that it becomes easier for us to enter into the struggles that are so real in our lives and to be able to be honest about those things, knowing that God loves us and we're going to be okay. Which leads me to the second chapter of the book that is the rewrite of our lives and I call this chapter honesty. Envisioning God holding us, God loving us, we prayerfully start reflecting upon the struggles that are so real in our lives. Trying to understand what's really at the root of these struggles. What part do we have to play in it all in order to be able to be honest? Example, last week I shared with you that for almost two decades I, was, I avoided my call to ministry out of fear, fear of failure. 
But during those years, if you'd have asked me why I wasn't following up on my call to ministry, I would have never said I was afraid. I would have never said that. I would have said other things. I'd have said things like, there's other things that I want to do, which wasn't exactly honest. It's more like there was other things I was doing, not necessarily wanting to do. Or I would have said, I'm not so certain about those church people. I mean, I'm different from them. That's what I would have said. And we know that's not so true, not different at all. But it's a whole lot easier to say those kinds of things than it is to say, I am afraid. It was only when I actually acted on this covenant that I have with God, I actually did something, that I acted upon this covenant. For me, that took the form of going to seminary. It was only then that I began to realize, you know, God really does love me even me. And it was in that place of love that I was able to start thinking about, you know, why did it take me so long to do this thing that God wanted me to do? And I began to realize that I was afraid. I was afraid of preaching, a fear of failure as a preacher. And as soon as I came to that recognition, it was like a door opened up for God to enter in and to start bringing about some kind of healing. Suddenly, I became aware of all the times the Bible talks about this very thing. Do not be afraid, for I've redeemed you. I've called you by name. You are mine, says the Lord. Fear not. With God on our side, what is there to fear? It was as if a door was opening up for God to enter in and to get into the back seat, the mess that I had made of my life in order to do something with it. Honesty opens the door for God to enter in. Which leads me to chapter three of the book, that is the rewrite of the narrative of our lives. And chapter three is entitled, Forgiveness. Forgiveness. When we're honest about our lives and struggles that are so real to us, Sometimes we begin to realize that we have a part to play in the creation of our own struggles. And that leads us to confession. To say it to God, this is what I did, and to ask for forgiveness. For me, that had to do with the wasting of so many years. The wasting of the gifts that God had given me and the loss of opportunities that I would have had if I would have answered my call sooner led me to confession. And when we confess, forgiveness comes. But now how do we know that God actually forgives us when we confess? How do we know that God forgives us? Remember, our faith is a relational faith. So I think about this in relational terms. I'm a parent. If one of my children did something that hurt another person or that hurt me, and came to me and asked for forgiveness, I would forgive my child. I mean, I can't envision not forgiving my child. I'm not perfect. I don't get everything right. 
But I cannot envision the situation where I wouldn't be willing to forgive my own child. And if, if I'm willing to do that, how much more would God, who is perfect, be willing to forgive us? God's love for us is not conditioned on how we behave. God's love for us is unconditional. God just loves us, period. And so, of course, God's going to forgive us. Of course. And with that forgiveness comes some freedom. But sometimes when we are taking a look at the source of the struggles of our life, we see that some of our struggles come about not so much because of something we've done, but because of something somebody else has done to us. Jesus taught us to pray, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who have sinned against us. If we do not forgive people who have harmed us, the pain does not go away. If we do not forgive people who have harmed us, the tapes don't stop running. We don't forgive somebody in order to be a blessing to their life. We forgive somebody so that we can be free and healed, which leads me to the fourth chapter of the book that is the rewrite of our lives. Freedom. Freedom. God works in our lives to heal us of our brokenness, to redeem our lives. And God isn't just redeeming what our lives are going to be moving forward. God is redeeming everything about our lives, including what has happened before. That way, the redemption can be complete. And that's why it is that St. Paul, over and over again in the book of Acts, tells the story of him overseeing the execution of Stephen. Because God had redeemed that part of his life. Not that that makes what he had done okay. It wasn't. It was terrible. It was terrible, but what he intended for evil, God was able to do something out of it to bring about good for somebody else's life. It became a part of his story that would bring others to the faith. That's what God does. God redeems our story to make it something new. I've experienced this throughout my life. Over those 16 years of running from my call and all the things that I did and all the adventures that, that we had and and all the lessons that I learned along the way, now that I'm in ministry, so often God has taken something from that time and redeemed it in order for it to be useful in ministry now. I experienced this just a couple of weeks ago. Some of you will remember that during that time of running from my call, one of the things that I did was sell produce. And I know a lot about produce. A lot. And so a few weeks ago, I'm touring three squares warehouses full of produce and then a number of different food pantries and seeing the produce that they have displayed. And I knew what I was looking at. I knew where it came from. I knew how long it would last. I knew how it could be used. I knew how many people would know how to use it. I knew a lot about it and it struck me. It struck me that God was taking that part of my life from so long ago when I was not faithful, taking that part of my life and redeeming it to use it now to bring about some good in somebody else's life out in Sandy Valley. 
It's what God does. This freedom that we experience is a freedom that comes from us being redeemed. You know, it's one thing to say that God forgives me. It's another thing to say I forgive myself. But when we realize that the stuff that we have a hard time forgiving ourselves for because we can't imagine something good coming from it is the very stuff that God redeems to bring something good from it. And suddenly we are free. We are free. Now, I want to show you a graphic to end today. It's a simple little graphic. If you got your cell phone still out and want to take a picture of it, do it so it reminds you of the sermon. That'd be totally fine. It starts with love. God loves us. Within the safety of knowing that God loves us, we're able to be truthful about our lives, to speak truth, which leads us to forgiveness, being forgiven by God, us being able to forgive other people, and in so doing, we experience freedom, freedom from this stuff that weighs us down, that keeps us from being able to make our way back up, up that hill, and soon we find ourselves on our way. But you see that freedom then leads back to love. And this circle repeats itself over and over again in our Christian life as God is busy at work unpacking all the stuff that, that we carry in the backseat of our car and the trunk and our suitcases. God's unpacking all of that stuff. So this cycle repeats itself over and over again until that day when it doesn't need to repeat itself over again. And then it just ends with love, which is the destination of this journey that our lives be defined by the love of God. St. Paul, in his first letter to the church in Corinth, in chapter 13, writes about this love, similar to what he wrote in Romans chapter 12 that you heard read a few moments ago. He says, love is patient, love is kind, love is not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. Love does not insist in its own way, but insists in the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. Those words do not describe Paul's early life. But they describe what he says when he gets to the top of the hill. What it means to be this new creation. What it is that God is doing in our lives. Those of us who dare this journey. Thanks be to God. Amen? Amen. At this time, I